Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Hello, folks, and welcome back to Recycler Secrets. Today, we're joined with Adam Brent, the founder and CEO of Coco Corporation. Adam's been in the composting game since 2010, and he's got kind of a cool story. So I wanted to bring him here today and, and have you guys get with him and, and understand what's going on. And I'm going to let Adam talk to you a little bit about the introduction on how he got into compost, because he tells a really mean story around that. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, so interestingly, I am not a, uh, I did not come to composting um, out of college. Um, out of college, my first job was in uh, agriculture. I was a, a grain merchant for a, a large uh, agribusiness company. And um, sometime after I started that, I decided to uh, go and get an advanced uh, business degree, an MBA in Chicago, and fell into the book business, which was my family's business, um, which I then ran my own bookstores for about 15 years. But the uh, the combination of the recession and, and the, the new marketing strategy of Amazon effectively drove that business uh, out of existence. So I was looking for something, something to do. And uh, my brother, who lives in uh, California, said, uh, why don't you look at composting? It, it involves agriculture. It involves, um, you know, heavy equipment, which is something that I was drawn to. And uh, he thinks that, you know, as a future business model, it's, it, it's probably a pretty cool idea. So I started uh, doing some research on the internet and um, not a lot of composting going on where I lived in Chicago. So it was, it was very difficult to imagine this, this whole process and learning about it. So after about a year of uh, studying it and, and researching it, I found a, uh, a seminar led by uh, Mennonite farmers in Western Illinois. And I drove out there, took the seminar, and absolutely fell in love with uh, the entire idea of uh, taking waste, repurposing it into a valuable product, which then went on to grow uh, healthier and better crops. So uh, with that, ignited kind of like a passion and the fire in me uh, with regard to what the possibilities for this industry could be. And then, you know, more research, more research, more research, you discover what the obstacles to this industry are. And um, in some ways, the, the answers are, are sitting right in front of us, but the obstacles, um, unfortunately, can be overwhelming. Absolutely. So when we're starting to talk about obstacles, when you and I first met probably six, seven years ago now, you were in the, the process of citing your first location. And so let's kind of talk through the challenges of that. I know you went through multiple townships trying to, to get some variances and to get some facilities in place, but you kept on running against the NIMBY, the not in my backyard. Right. Let's talk about that. When you, when you looked at, uh, at, at composting operations, it's a very new industry. So um, as, a, as an entity, it's probably less than 30 or 40 years of age. Um, and then in terms of being a industry with deep experience, it's probably only 10 to 15 years um, in terms of width and breadth across the United States. So it's, it's, um, it's a new industry. And as it was developing the processes of uh, dealing with the varieties of different waste streams, a lot of different compost operators ran into difficulty. And that difficulty resulted in odors or other unseemly uh, site effects, right, uh, where you had vectors, uh, which are rodents and things like that. And uh, ultimately, they would get shut down, they would raise a public nuisance, and it raised the spectacle that composting was a intolerable industry for our society. You know, so, so basically, that's what the public perception is, yet everybody that you talk to 
embraces the idea of repurposing the waste into compost and, uh, you know, using it, using the product. Um, it was just that nobody wanted to have it in their backyard. And so, you know, the first step that you do when you, when you want to site a compost facility is look at what are the state regulations. And so the state uh, effectively requires you to have setbacks from neighbors, from depth to water tables, rivers, uh, sensitive receptors like churches, schools, hospitals, things like that. So you start having to really look out into um, agricultural land. And um, unless you happen to live in that community, you're likely to be greeted as an unwanted um, foreigner who's going to bring the terrors of the industry to their community. <laughs> so you, you have to go into it with that perspective that, that you are likely going to be um, vilified by the, uh, the locals, uh, which is, yeah, we really like the idea of composting, but could you please do it somewhere else? Right. And so effectively what happened was when I was trying to site my first facility, um, I went to a, a variety of different communities, and each one of them, uh, when I would ask for a special use permit in order to, to um, allow me to do that type of work, uh, the community would get all riled up um, and then run me out of town. Hmm. And so how many communities did you go through? Uh, well, right now I've gone, th I, I went through three before I met you. Okay. And uh, since that time, I've um, been run out of town one more time. Okay. So, you, and you describe your process not really as composting, but as organic waste recycling. Is that correct? Yeah, it is uh, really, uh, it's an art form, to be perfectly honest. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of people that don't understand the science of composting. And so at a very high level, without spending a lot of time, right. it, you know, it's, you have to have certain components of materials in order to make a good mix, in order to make a good after product, a, a good soil amendment. Can you talk through that for just a second? Sure. The, at the high level, um, there are certain uh, types of uh, materials that degrade very quickly and certain types of materials that degrade very slowly. And it all has to do with how microbes interact with those materials. Um, just think about it like that if you eat a candy bar and a, and a, a bottle of Coke um, or soda, you're going to get a sugar high very quickly. And so you've got like this rush of energy, but then you're going to come crashing down. Uh, microbes work basically the same way, which is that if you give them a lot of really tasty food, um, they're going to eat it very quickly and then have nothing at the end. So you try to mix these ingredients together at a, in the ratio that will make them uh, work for the long haul. They do have that initial, you know, a burst of energy, but then uh, they produce a, a, a compost over a longer period of time that is extremely valuable to the soil. Okay. So, it, and it really comes down to feedstocks. I mean, you can't have a composting operation that has 90% carbon and 10% other stuff. Correct. You've got to have the right materials. And so when we talk about compost, I think the people need to understand that in order to run a facility, you can't have just a restaurant slop food byproduct compost. You can't have just a yard waste compost. You can't have just this or just that. It has to blend together into a, into a recipe. Absolutely. The critical aspect of that is that what you're working with are materials that are going to degrade and potentially cause odors. What you have to be able to do is balance the feedstocks, the, the ratio of that, um, what we'll call the leaves, your carbon supply, and the food, which is your nitrogen supply. So you've effectively got to balance the, the amount that you take with the timing that you take based on the amount of space that you have in order to facilitate the composting. So you're juggling a lot of balls, and at any given time, um, something can go wrong. So you need to be, be prepared for eventualities, um, and you have to, um, and again, like this is uh, kind of like a, you know, one of the industry lessons was don't get ahead of yourself, which is uh, don't contract for more than what you can handle, and uh, definitely... Um, you know, manage that material through a process that makes sure that you're not a, um, a, a problem to your neighbors. Right. 
in your business, there's a couple different mechanisms of dealing with food waste. And, and we, we know adirondack digestion is one, but when we talk about uh, land composting like you're doing, there's open windrows and then you have a closed windrow process where you're actually covering your windrows. Correct. Um, tell us why you do that. Why, why you go down that road and spend that extra effort? Again, like, you know, it depends on the state regulations, um, the type of composting that you're, you're permitted to do, things like that. Um, but uh, the, the system that we employ is called a turned windrow composting system, which is probably the most practical. Um, and it's, it's not the lowest cost, but it's certainly um, lower infrastructure costs than, say, an anaerobic digester or an aerated static pile, uh, lower overall operating costs than those things. And it's much more flexible. So the flexibility comes in in that um, the material is, is uh, capable of being um, turned into compost very quickly, which allows you to free up more pad space so that you can make more compost. Um, the advantage of the windrow covers, where most uh, compost facilities don't use them, is that you can eliminate one of the uh, variables that comes to haunt most compost operations, which is too much water in your compost. Moisture. So once once you uh, so you've got to always be aware of the the composting conditions, and it, you know if you're doing it inside of a building, well, you've effectively taken the elements out of the the process. But covering a uh, a turned windrow composting facility in a building is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. So the the next best um, option is to use these uh, windrow covers, which basically shed the water from uh, rainfall events, and then that allows you to maintain the proper moisture levels within the windrow. And so, y- if you can control the process, you can control that variable, which ultimately, you know, gets it to go out of whack and causes odors. So, you're always looking at the odors as the uh, kind of like the driving force for maintaining your process. So by covering the windrows, it speeds up your processing time as well, correct? A little bit. It's not. It's not enough of a advantage in in uh, from from you know just simply covering it that that you'd say that the windrow covers were responsible for it. Um, but what you would say is that by making sure that it, the material didn't get too wet, yes, then your process does be does become a consistent process, and overall, then it is a faster process. Okay. From time in in the gate to time out of the gate, what is your process time frame? Uh, so from it, it, it there is actually two two times, and I, I know that's confusing. But um, the yard waste itself really won't decompose. So yard waste composting facilities tend to have somewhere around a one year time frame in mm-hmm. terms of when they uh, will will bring in leaf material and when they can actually sell it as a finished product. Um, and then, of course, that depends on their, on their processing, but, but typically it's a much longer lead time. We are somewhere in the range of about 10 to 12 weeks, uh, 12 weeks in the wintertime because, um, again, the microbes are exposed to the outside conditions, and at freezing temperatures, anything below 50 degrees, and microbial activity drops by 50% for every 10 degrees. You know, so you've got a longer process during the wintertime, shorter in the, in the summertime, average between 10 and 12 weeks. Okay. You know, for people who don't understand compost to a great degree, there's tons of different feedstocks that you can put into it. So what are the most important characteristics when you're thinking about approving a new feedstock? Because I know you've done paper pulps. I know you've done some manufacturing industrial kind of materials. Mm-hmm. So kind of talk through that. I mean, what are some of the weird things that you've done over the years, you know, even as trials? Sure. And and what's the qualification process of, hey, I've got this, will you use this? What's that approval look like? The approval process can again like depending on on your your past experience with that material will play a big role in terms of your willingness to accept it. So and and people will you have to think about like what the the uh, potential for for organic waste could be. It could be anything from fish heads mm-hmm. to um, uh, the uh, paunch from uh, a, a processing facility. Paunch are, are the stomach contents of animals. Um, you could have 
um, canned goods. You could have uh, frozen turkeys. You could have a mortality event, which was that a large poultry operation or a pig farm uh, had an accident and all the animals died. Um, you could have uh, just your run-of-the-mill food waste, which is what people throw away after they're done eating the half a burger and you know fries and the uh, cup of Coke. Um, it could go to um, industrial uh, manufacturing processes, which could be anything that went into the, the manufacture of frozen foods, for example. Um, so if you were making lasagna or, uh, or uh, beef stew, all of those ingredients, um, you've got the, the tops of the, of the carrots, you've got the outside of the onion, you've got the potato peels, all, all those possible things can be thrown at you as an organic waste uh, recycler. So you, what you needed to be able to un understand is how much of that material is coming at you, how consistent is it, uh, is, has it been tainted with any sort of processing chemicals? Because, um, for example, a wastewater treatment material, um, that may have gone through some sort of uh, chemical oxidation process. Was it subjected to you know, chlorines, um, things like that, that would interrupt with biological activity? And would that uh, fall into the finished product? Because ultimately, the compost does go out into the environment. It is applied on a farmer's field, and you do grow the next crop. So you have to be aware that if you're bringing in a potential contaminant, it may not degrade during the composting process, survive it, and then become a liability once it goes out into the world. So those are, uh, you know, there's just, when, when somebody comes to you and you don't know them, you need to ask a lot of questions. And those questions start with, um, you know, what is the material? Can we get, can we get a third-party analysis of it? Um, has the material uh, been con gone through somebody else's ownership so that you don't necessarily know, um, uh, you know, what that process was involved? Um, can I see a sample of it? Um, is this a one-off deal? Is this going to be for five years? Um, you know, there's pretty much there's a lot to consider when you're when you're going to go into this business. Okay. So you and I talked uh, before the interview a little bit, you know, there's a trend right now and, and we've talked about it on this podcast before on holding zero waste events. And, you know, in that process, I preach that if you want to hold a zero waste event and you really want to go down that road, then you don't want recyclable plastics and you don't want cornstarch silverware. You want durables. You want to rent china and silverware and cloth napkins. And that's how you create a zero waste event. But I know a lot of people over the years have come to you and said, you know, hey, we want to do this, whether it's a festival or it's a wedding, you know, a zero waste event. Talk through what the problems with that, that, that present for an organization like yourself. So I wholeheartedly support zero waste events um, and, and the prospect of going zero waste for, for companies and businesses and, and communities. I think that's absolutely the most admirable goal. Um, but the reality of it has to set in, which is that the, um, some of the materials that they want to send to a compost facility are not what a compost facility wants to compost. So compostable um, uh, materials like a plastic bag or a plastic cup or a plastic uh, silverware, um, that's not what a compost facility is, is designed to compost. It, we're designed to compost organic materials that are uh, food and yard waste and, and, and things like that that break down very, very quickly. Um, so when you have one of these zero waste events, a lot of times um, there's very little food waste and it's all just plastic materials coming to us that then you know we need to incorporate into a composting environment and it, those don't break down very quickly and they're not really what microbes want to be eating. So um, you don't make a very good compost out of that out of that material as an incidental it's not a problem but when it becomes that you do a zero waste event and everybody ate the food and all you have are the silverware uh, or plastic compostable ware it's not the feedstock that a composter wants to get um, so that, that's just kind of like the 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 thing 
and, and where that goes to is how do you get people to focus on, um, a investing in those hard goods, um, and then those hard goods then have a much longer life, right? Because all you had to do was wash them, uh, and then they're available for reuse. Um, but also, you can focus your composting on the materials that you want to be composting. Right. When a brewery has an event and they want to use compostable cups and they want to send it to a facility like yours, a, a composting facility, it's not a desirable product. No, it's near worthless. Right. And when you look at anaerobic digestion, those have augers that feed in, and those are, are huge detriments to those systems. Yes, when, when those systems clog. Absolutely. It's um, very expensive. It's very expensive because it takes an anaerobic digester, think of it as basically a giant enclosed tub that is um, um, gassing off the methane gas, and that's the energy that you're trying to capture. Um, but it's it's based on the the flow through of the material through the process, and if those pipes clog because of a, you know, a, a cup or a, or a stick or whatever, um, then the whole process shuts down, right. and it takes weeks to get it back to where it's efficiently producing the the methane gas. Right, and I think that that's an important takeaway here that a lot of people don't understand is they they look out at the world and they say oh you know, single-use plastic is bad, so let's replace it with this compostable plastic cup made of corn. And that's great in theory. You know, when you put that into a landfill, it's going to decompose faster and it's not going to have the lifespan of a plastic. But if you try to send that down the composting realm, and that's the mentality you have as a user, it's not something that we want into the industry into the infrastructure, right? Uh, it, the, the whole, the, the rationale behind it is to reduce the potential contamination to the compost facility. So in other words, what we're trying to do is make it easier to, because Americans don't like to think about what it is when they throw things away, right? They've just been uh, eating this food and the last thing they want to do is take an extra 30 seconds at the garbage can to figure out where should I put this? Does it go in this bin or this bin? Oh, I don't really care, and they just throw it all away. So based on the fact that uh, somebody else, the, the purveyor of that um, facility, isn't going to reach into that garbage can and pull out those contaminants, it then is left to the compost facility to deal with those contaminations. And, you know, we're dealing with large volumes of material. It's expensive to have to go in and remove those contaminants, so the idea that they could break down in the process is what makes it somewhat acceptable to the composter, but it's not, again, it, the desirability of the composter to, to use that as their feedstocks is close to zero. Um, so we've learned a lesson here in the last two years as it relates to recycling. I mean, we went out there and, and convinced people that they could put damn near anything in the recycle container and we'd sort it out through the automated process. And so we've built that mentality into people that we're now trying to change in our industry and in the materials management industry. But we want to try to keep that away from people that are coming your way. We don't want to reinvent the sins onto another industry is what I would like to call it. And, and that's what I think of, you know, compostable wares is that's just us pushing something towards another industry that they really don't want. Yeah, I think when you look at the, um, that, that the industries. Uh, attempt to adapt to the unbelievable amount of waste that the country produces is that we want to spend less effort throwing things away and leave it to somebody like a waste management or a Republic or uh, Viola or, you know, uh, you know, or Coco to then figure out what to do with it. Right. And of course they don't want to adequately pay for those services because we're always left with the competing aspect of we'll just put it in the landfill right um, which is a simple solution I mean we, we effectively created that that as the solution to uh, litter mm -hmm. right uh, which was if you operate these landfills and they do a great job of you know aggregating the waste keeping it from uh, blowing all over the place uh, getting out into the environment making sure that the uh, you know that the uh, the landfill is properly operated and doesn't mm -hmm. cause to community problems. Done a great job with that. Um, problem is that made it too easy for everybody to think that that is 
the, the solution. And when you look at the uh, effects of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, that's something that is, it, it needs to change. It's going to be a hard behavior to change. And it's going to take a lot of other infrastructure that we have yet to develop, which we were just talking about earlier. Right. Um, that something that might seem like a simple solution actually can get pretty complicated. Let's clue the folks in that are listening to that a little bit. So we were talking about why you can't simply convert a garbage truck into a food waste truck. And so when we got into the recycling avenue of this materials management structure, we said, okay, we've got a truck that's picking up garbage, and now we can just use that same truck to pick up recycling on a different day. Easy peasy, right? And just goes to a different spot. But when we get to food waste, the amount of liquids that come with food waste um, in, inherently in that product is large. And when you put that into a truck that's not designed to hold liquids, it creates its own avenues. So there are, you know, specially designed trucks that will do this. And, and a lot of people have what I call creatively thought through this process and, and engineered things. And, you know, you can look at... Uh, Northern Michigan to Emmett County, for an example of someone who's taken a roll off container and welded a cart tipper on the side of it and put a hydraulic mechanism in the back of something to make that all work and kind of Frankensteined it together as a, as an inexpensive way to get into that business versus going out and buying a 250 to $300,000 truck that's designed to do that. Um, because it's about economy of scales, right? I mean, you can't say, hey, we're going to start a food waste program in ABC community, and there's seven people that want to start it with us, and so we're going to buy a $350,000 truck to do that. You can't do that. No, you can't. And it was, again, like, uh, as you said, it was a um, – you can't simply uh, equate the existing infrastructure to being adaptable to um, something now that's unique, which was that, um, as you said, the existing waste hauling trucks do not have a reservoir to handle the liquid that would come about as a result of just exclusive food waste going into that truck. And as a result of that, what, what would happen is that the uh, truck would be driving down the road. It would, st- it would stop at the stop sign. It would slosh forward, and then it would slosh back when it accelerates. And the car behind it would get pummeled juice. with juice. Yeah, um, It would then be on the road. And um, there are obviously uh, transportation laws that require that that material not be sloshing out of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, you would then also um, ups- upset a lot of people who would say, you know, wash my car. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in, in the waste industry, you see multiple times a year that uh, a resident will call a, a waste contractor and say, hey, in front of my house, there's this pile of crap. And it, it could be paint that leaked out of a truck right? because someone threw away, you know, paint instead of putting it through a household hazardous waste process. It could be, um, you know, just liquids from a heavy rain event, but that has an order to it. And so if you have a truck that stops in front of a house and whether it's a hydraulic leak, whether it's paint, whether it's liquids, and it makes a mess on that curb in front of that house, that homeowner is going to make a phone call. Absolutely. Because you're going to have that smell. And, you know, I've seen different communities where a truck has drove through a community, picked up paint, and the driver never realized it and did five, six blocks. And all of a sudden, you've got this trail of paint around five or six blocks. Or they go into a parking lot and pick up a commercial container and they compress it. And it's got a 55-gallon drum hiding in the bottom of the container with 30% of paint in it yet. And at the next stop, when they compact that truck, that paint leaks out into the parking lot. And now you've got five gallons of paint in a parking lot. That doesn't make someone happy. No, certainly, uh, you know, from, uh, and that's just the, um, you know, the, the hauler perspective. Right. Um, we didn't even start to address the different types of containers um, that that truck would need to be able to um, handle in order to um, perform, know, itself. With, yeah. perform itself. In other yeah. words, to collect the waste. So, so you've got a collection uh, obstacle which is what type of a container are you going to put food waste into? From an individual's perspective, that container can be very heavy. So how are you going to get it out from your business out to the curb um, if, you know, if that's what you've got to do? Or then uh, so the truck has to come pick it up. And then once it comes to the compost facility, um, liquid waste is the hardest waste to handle mm-hmm. because 
um, within the composting process where we mentioned the windrow covers as trying to keep out the extra moisture from uh, the environment. Um, if you have waste that has too much liquid in it, you collapse what they call the pore space of the composting. That then doesn't allow oxygen to get into it, which favors anaerobic microbes, which basically create those nasty smells. And so you get this chain of events that are... The, you know, I, I always like the expression when, when you're up to your eyeballs and alligators, it's hard to remember your initial objective was to drain the swamp. And you quickly get into the swamp um, when you start collecting large amounts of heavy, wet food waste. Right. And your facility may not be prepared for that type of activity. So um, all of these things need to be thought out, designed, and appropriately planned for so that you don't become the object of your neighbor's scorn. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, just to kind of compound that a little bit, there are facilities that take large amounts of food waste. And when that food waste comes in, that material goes onto a concrete pad that's specially designed to eliminate that leakage into a reservoir or into a leachate tank. And that leachate tank is either used for moisture back on the composting or is pumped off and sent to a wastewater treatment plant. Compost tea or the runoff from compost is tied to fish kill and is tied to other things when it gets into the water streams. And so we want to try to keep that because, you know, if you're fertilizing a yard or you're fertilizing a field and you're taking the scrap off that field, you've got all that fertilizer as well. And if that gets into the water stream, it runs off, you've got issues. Yeah. And so, so people don't think about that. Again, that compounding issue, you know, You've got the truck, you've got the reservoir, you've got to have the education campaign. The facility that you're bringing it to has to be equipped to handle that percentage of liquid. Yes. But um, so I guess I uh, back you up a little bit there. Uh, I used a term which isn't quite right. Um, compost tea is not the same as leachate. Right. Um, so compost tea is a liquefied product of compost after it has finished composting. So uh, compost tea is what a lot of gardeners will use mm -hmm. or uh, even some farmers will use it as a nutrient source, uh, mostly microbial, uh, less so for actual um, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. Right. Leachate is the product of um, excessive moisture within the compost process itself right. that, that does in fact pose a problem to the external environment if you don't prepare for it at your facility. So the best thing that I can, um, I can recommend is that you design your facility properly in the first place, which as you pointed out would be a concrete pad, but turn windrow systems are very um, large uh, systems, so concrete is not always right. an option, which is why the state requires you to have a depth to water table. Yep. Um, but, so, and the pad reference was really your receiving area. Yes. But, so that when that material comes into the receiving area and it's waiting to go into your wind roasting, into your mixture, yes. that it's on a pad so it's not leaching into the ground and you're not running off into different reservoirs where it doesn't need to go, that it wasn't designed to go. Correct. Especially because when that food waste comes in, um, another problem which we didn't even address yet are pathogens. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of that food might be uh, old uh, hamburgers. Some of it might be a fresh head of lettuce. Um, you don't know. You can't really, um, uh, you know, isolate that you only want the hamburgers or you only want the lettuce. It's all going to come commingled. So you need to prepare for uh, the leachate uh, possibly getting away from you. And the other is that you've got to worry about the pathogens, neither one of which do you want to introduce into the environment. So having a concrete uh, receiving area is incredibly important. The second is, is that you want an isolated uh, retention pond, ideally, facility where the water uh, goes, uh, that comes off of that area goes into a retention pond system that's lined uh, and does not go out into the environment. Again, those are more, more and more obstacles to doing the process um, right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's admirable that everybody wants to, you know, have their food waste um, thrown away and, and composted. 
but you've got to prepare for all of those eventualities. Absolutely. There's infrastructure. There's, infra- there's massive infrastructure that's required. Right. So let's, let's kind of skip back to, to food for a second. You traditionally take a lot of pre-consumer waste um, today. Yes. But you're not doing post-consumer waste. You're not a large percentage of post-consumer waste. Can you explain why? Part of it had to do with the collection. Um, in, in other words, um, the collection of the post-consumer had to do with the capabilities of the uh, waste haulers who uh, don't have those trucks. So they didn't have the type of truck that could handle a large volume of pure post-consumer food waste. Um, so, that, so that was part of it. The other part of it was the simplicity of using industrial food supplies was readily adaptable to a new business model, which uh, effectively my business was a new business model. So having consistent supplies of, of a food source that we were familiar with, that we'd pre-tested, made sure there was no contaminants, et cetera, um, made it easy to incorporate into the process and then guaranteed that we could effectively move it through our composting process without any problem. There's a book out there, uh, American Wasteland by Jonathan Bloom, and, you know, he talks about the, the ever-growing pr- problem of food in the United States. In that book, he cites a USDA 1997 uh, report that was called Estimating and Addressing America's Food Losses. And in that report, you know, it looked at, you know, the U.S. produces about 591 billion pounds of food annually, and 27% of that is the wasted side of it, um, which equals about 160 billion pounds of food. And so if you put a dollar value to that, you know, and just say one dollar, it's 160 billion dollars. But in another side of that was the General Accounting Office, the GAO, did a report that basically took that and said, you know, million of federal funds go to food that's wasted, whether that's a school lunch program, you know, whether that's, you know, other federally funded programs like the WIC program. So food and and the cost of what we're throwing out because we overproduce and underconsume, you know, is really a factor. And it's something that we need to address. And, And I think that, you know, some of the things that we've told the listeners today is it's about infrastructure, right? That you can identify these problems and and there is money out there. I mean, if the federal government said, well, we're throwing away $261 million of, or billion dollars of, of federal funds every year, let's take 10 billion of that and throw it towards infrastructure investment. They could do that. They could do that. Yep. Um, And I think it, it comes back to the full circle conversation of, once we produce this compost material, good compost like yours goes onto fields, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But other more static composters who aren't really testing it, you know, they're good for general applications on roadside construction projects and things like that. But that gets back to the Department of Transportation specs, and they're not allowing those materials as part of those specs in a lot of places. Also, with the, the DOT, uh, even with the specs, even assuming that you made the grade, um, the, the, the typical problem is that the compost operation is in Grand Rapids mm-hmm. and the use is in Traverse City. Traverse yeah, City. Yeah, three hours so away. So by the time you added in the transportation cost for getting that material there, mm-hmm. it exceeded what the contract dollars uh, that were being made available to that contractor who bid out the project. Right. That's, again, you know, one of those things. If you were making compost all over the state, uniformly producing it to the, the specs of the DOT, that would be less of a problem, right? Then it would just be your local composter, just like it's your local aggregate supplier for the crushed limestone and sand, et cetera. But that's not the case. That's <laughs> not the case, no. <laughs> um, but going back to what you said about the, uh, the, the amount of food waste, uh, the EPA estimates that the average American consumer throws away about 2.2 pounds of food per person per day. And when you look at the energy that was used to produce that food, and you look at the water resources that were used to produce that food, and then you look at the potential for the greenhouse gas emissions uh, that could be emitted both in the production, the transportation, distribution, and then the waste of that 
uh, product, it, it becomes a staggering amount of waste. So, so I think that, that that number that you gave is actually uh, very, very much under uh, appreciated and definitely underestimated in terms of what the total value uh, of the waste is. Right. Uh, especially when you consider that, and we'll go into that when in just a minute, which is that if you can repurpose that, and it is it is readily repurposable into a value-added soil amendment of compost, um, the 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 entire equation gets flipped onto its head, which is that it's no longer um, all of that energy and water resources that are wasted. Instead, it was necessary in order to produce the amount of food that the average American wants to eat, and then the waste is then uh, successfully reintroduced back into the agricultural world to produce more food because American farmers are incredibly productive. Right. Um, and, and they can be more so with, with compost. On your website, you have a video that talks about the health, the functioning, and the stability of soil. Mm-hmm. And in that video, you know, for those of you who don't have access to go look at it, they basically take a clump of soil from a, a tilled field. They take a clump of soil from an unmanaged piece of property that hasn't been farmed. And they put those both in a, a little metal cage and they stick them in a dunk of water, um, just static water, not water that's moving around by any means. And you look at uh, how that breaks apart. Can you talk about that? Sure. So uh, that's, uh, we're, we're, we're going to definitely drift away from uh, waste recycling. We're going to go straight to uh, agricultural and soil, soil dynamics. Yep. The soil in its natural state evolved to never be disturbed except for some, through some calamitous event. Uh, what that meant was that the, the soil is a, an environment that has a lot of living beings in it. It's got earthworms, it's got nematodes, it's got uh, little uh, roly-polies, right? All of those things are moving in and out of the soil environment. So there are a lot of holes in the soil. And that means that when it rains, the water can percolate down into the soil and all those living things will gather what it needs from the movement of the, of the water through the soil. So nutrients uh, will become available. Um, microbes and things like that will decompose dead plant matter and dead animal matter. And the cycle uh, create, has its own life cycle within the soil. What happens is that farmers give a one-two punch to the soil. And the, the first punch is that they use nitrogen fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer is a toxic chemical that effectively kills all the microbial life in the soil. The microbes are what help glue those soil particles together. And then when you run through it with a, with a, a, a plow or a, or, a, or a disc, you cut apart all of those binders. And they don't glue together because there are no microbes left in the soil because you just killed them with the chemical fertilizer. And as a result of that, the soil falls in on itself and it creates what they call soil compaction. And in that compacted soil environment, water no longer percolates uh, through the soil. Instead, it runs off onto the surface and it carries with it into the watershed all of those valuable nutrients and soil particles. So your rivers end up sedimenting over and bringing with it excessive amounts of nutrients that ultimately lead to an imbalance in that environment, which creates um, toxic algae blooms like what we have in Lake Erie or in the Gulf of Mexico. And those toxic algae blooms release toxins into the environment. They also use up the oxygen. And so you have uh, dead zones. So no life is in those uh, aquatic environments as a result of what takes place in the farm fields. That probably went pretty far. Afield. No, no, that's exactly but, where I wanted you but, to go. But that's what happens when, uh, when you disturb that environment and you release the chemical fertilizers. What the value of the compost is, and which is why I have that video on the, on the website, is that those microbes that are reintroduced by the compost will glue the soil back together again and instead of the water running off to the side or off the top, it now percolates through the soil and it allows the soil to rebuild itself, reestablish all of those interactions between microbes and between the higher life forms. 
and uh, it rejuvenates the soil and allows the crops to grow deeper roots, thus relying on less irrigation water, making better use of the water and fertilizers that do get applied. And so you grow bigger crops, you grow healthier crops, and you uh, impact the aquatic environment far less than you would uh, when you're just relying on the, the till and uh, the plow. So soil amendments are really the ultimate goal of compost, right? Right. Taking that material, you know, and if you look at uh, iceberg lettuce production, that equipment that's running through that field and that worker that's, that's dealing with that product as they're picking it is reaching down and touching that head of lettuce and determining by feel whether it's a good product or bad product. And if it's a bad product, it's left in that field to rot and tilled back in and refertilized. But it's not necessarily composted with other materials. It's just that one item that's left in that field and then fertilizer and, and till is applied to it versus, you know, taking a more progressive approach of, of blending multiple materials to put that core binder back into the earth. And it's mine. That's, that's buzzing. One of our phones were buzzing. <laughs> And we're both looking like, ah, geez, here's all this. Um, you know, I think that ultimately what Americans need to understand is, you know, we are fastly approaching through over farming another Dust Bowl. Yes. And uh, so so having that, you know, having a, 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 a head of lettuce rotting in the field is not a problem. Right. Um, it, it, just think about it that at the end of the year, your, your, your uh, grassy field would ultimately fall down, fold back into the soil, and then the soil life would work to decompose that material and then return, it, uh, return the carbon into the soil, uh, liberate the nutrients so that other things could use it, and it becomes available to the next crop. The, the reason I use that example, the lettuce example, is, is it, it illustrates, in my opinion, the amount of waste that's done in that type of farming. Right. So you're only harvesting 30 to 70% of the crop. You know, there's always a percentage that's left over. Oh yeah. Well, there's also the, the quote, the ugly fruit, the ugly fruit, right? Yeah. Which is that if you ever go to a, a, a um, um, an apple or an orange processing facility or a pumpkin processing facility or whatever, um, you'll find that there's a picking line. And in that picking line, um, if they see a tomato that doesn't look right, it goes in the garbage. Um, and that's simply because they know that the American consumer, when they're looking at that tomato in the grocery store, is going to say, I don't want that bruise, and they'll pick the next one. That's not, um, th that's not incorrect behavior, which right. is that um, we know somehow or another uh, in, uh, intrinsically that eating something rotten is not good for us. Right. Um, you're, you're, not, you're not wrong for, for wanting to eat what looks like to be the freshest and best uh, thing to eat. Um, we just produce so much that we can be picky. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look back at, say, World War II, armies that were surrounding a city, they would eat anything, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we just have the luxury of an overabundant amount of food in this country with which to choose from. That being said, it would be a shame to take those rejected items and just dispose of them as opposed to finding a way to put it back into the soil and once again recreate that environment uh, that allows the soil to rebuild itself using the, all the care and nutrients that, you, that the original plant did to produce it in the first place. Right. In the total materials management structure of it, you know, another thing a lot of people don't understand is there's a, there's a shelf life to all foods. And so when you pick a field of iceberg lettuce and they package it and they wrap all those individual heads, you know, in plastic or put them in plastic bags, five packs, and send them off to distribution, if that material doesn't make it to the store in the right amount of time, that truckload is rejected. And because that material is now wrapped, that material ends up in a landfill versus into a composting facility. That added, a lot of times. You just added another layer of complexity. Another layer of complexity. To a composter, which is that if something is wrapped in a can or yep. a plastic bag. Um, the depackaging. 
yeah. it is inaccessible to the microbes within the windrow. So Absolutely. even though you added, you know, the correct amount of lettuce, if it was all in plastic bags, uh, you added that lettuce to your windrow of yard waste, the yard waste never saw any of the lettuce. Right. Um, and so it rotted within that thing and, you know, creates a problem. So again, then there's another layer of, um, for the composter, more equipment, more processing, yep. and you're left with, but it still was just so cheap to send it to the landfill. Absolutely. So, you know, until we um, change that dynamic that, you know, that if you're, if you have organic waste, you no longer think in terms of whether or not a landfill is a choice and that all the companies then are saying, okay, if, if that's going to be the, the business model, we can build the infrastructure. We can have those special trucks. We can develop those routes. Um, but it costs more than going to the landfill. I mean, let's just face Absolutely. it. You look at um, uh, composting will, uh, on, the, on a per ton basis, employ four times more people than a landfill. Well, that's four times more expense, um, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, And Absolutely. those four people also have to have four times as much equipment as what a landfill does. So... Again, like it's, it's great, but you have to have the economic model there to support the, uh, the production of compost. Absolutely. And you know, one of the reasons I went down that path and used that example is it, if you look at what we've done through packaging in America and you look at the convenience of it, my wife brought some home the other day, you know, iceberg lettuce, you always imagine it's in this plastic bag and cauliflower is always in this plastic bag when you buy it. But now they're shrink wrapping the broccoli for crying out loud. Why? Uh, well, because they don't want the consumer to touch it. Correct. And then the next consumer to walk by and say, oh, they just touched my broccoli. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's the You're packaging You're going to steam industry. it and kill everything, yeah, but no. nonetheless. But here's a, another example, which is that uh, my wife um, said she just cleaned out our pantry. Mm -hmm. She said, would you believe it? We had cans in there from 2000 and that expired in 2013. Well, Absolutely. Okay, so we didn't get around to eating that particular can of goods for several years, and we sort of, you know, left it in the back and thought, you know, maybe ultimately we get to it. And we never really looked at the dates. Right. Um, but that goes to an industry practice, mm -hmm. which is that the industry wants you to buy food. They want food to expire. They mm -hmm. want you to throw away that can of goods, which is in all probability still good. Right. Um, canned goods will stay good for practically forever, but we have in our, the back of our mind, you know, the potential for botulism, um, yep. we have in our mind, well, you know, maybe it's not so good. Um, after all, why should I take the chance? It's only a dollar to go buy a new can. Right. Right. So, so again, like we have the luxury of inexpensive food overproduction and the ability to just go out and get another can of food, but you could compost that that can under oh, the absolutely. right conditions yep. and the botulism goes away you repurpose those nutrients it goes back it grows you know better healthier crops for the future so right. um it, it's just simply we've got to uh rebuild this infrastructure uh re-educate the population on how to throw things away and um and create that valuable product that farmers can invest in and uh utilize to their benefit as well We've kind of talked about some of the largest challenges that you have in the materials management segment that compost fits into. I mean, we've talked about infrastructure. We've talked about the transportation side of it, of getting it to the facility in the correct truck, you know, that's capable of holding that, about then getting that material back out to a usable field or to a project somewhere where that material can be added. What things have we missed? What other large challenges does your segment have right now? Interestingly, right now, the public is, has this yearning for sustainable reuse of food waste. The industry is grappling with how to catch up with that, how to build that infrastructure, and how to overcome those um, public objections to having a compost facility near you. Again, one of the things about the compost is that most of the food waste is, is occurring within a municipality, but by state law, you cannot have a composting operation within that municipality simply because the requirements can't be met. Right. Um, so that forces you out into the country. With, within that, then, you need to basically be able to 
have in that environment than all of the feedstocks that you would need in order to properly compost that food waste. So again, it's developing the, uh, the feedstock recipe, having sufficient space, having the uh, economic capital in order to carry it out, and then uh, developing the, the finished product market for the, for the compost. Okay. I'd like to kind of wrap it up with a, a few kind of rapid questions and kind of tie into the things that, uh, that have helped make you where you are. What books have you read or suggest to help people get more knowledge on this? Oh, I wish you would have given me the list. I mean, I've got the, I've, I've got a library at home. I'm sure you like... do. <laughs> if you were to pick one off the shelf that you would say is your favorite book as it relates to this subject, what would that be? Soil microbiology. Okay. No worries. <laughs> is there any podcasts or, or things that you listen to to gain information on this topic? I, I'm, I'm not um, a podcaster. Okay. Uh, proficient. Okay. Um, my, my research has, has almost always been in the realm of, uh, academic published papers. Okay. So, um, there's uh, compost science and utilization, um, uh, publication. And, uh, so that aggregates, uh, all of the types of research that are being done on composting. Okay. Uh, BioCycle magazine, mm -hmm. uh, us composting council. Mm -hmm. Um, those are all kind of like high-level um, aggregators of resources and uh, the common theme around composting. But if, if you just stay with that, then you're going to miss out on the, the recycling and waste age, uh, you know, side of things, right? Because, I mean, that's where we're starting with. Is mm -hmm. We're starting with a waste product. Yep. And then the finished product has no resemblance to that original material. So now you've got to divorce yourself from waste and you've got to go to what is your finished product. So you need to, um, you know, if, if your market is agriculture, which mine is, then you need to be steeped in, in the wisdom and lore of agriculture. So you're looking at uh, agricultural journals, um, agricultural meetings, um, soil, uh, American Society of Agronomists, American Soil Societies. Those, so, right, so that's going to take you out of that. Then you need to be um, uh, uh, proficient in uh, municipal um, activities because a lot of your activity is going to be surrounding around municipal governments. So you need to be uh, thinking about what communities are uh, moving towards that. So you need to be reading just general dailies about, um, you know, what community wants to have a composting program going. Right. What trade shows do you go to annually that, that give you the connections that you're in? Because it's really, it's a networking world, right? Right. So um, here in Michigan, we, uh, um, we have the Michigan Recycling Coalition uh, mm -hmm. annual meeting. Um, in, uh, the, on the national scene, there's the U.S. Composting Council. Mm -hmm. um, there's a... Um, uh, there's a SWANA meeting, Solid mm -hmm. Waste of North America. Um, so those are, again, like those are the types of, of, of national programs. But um, And then there's the U.S. Composting Council's um, certified operator, compost operator training courses. Mm -hmm. So they hold those around the country. Um, I've, I've been to that, so I don't need to go, but um, I would send my employees to that. Right. So there's also tour events that happen around college campuses. I mean, we've got MSU in our backyard here in Lansing. MSU has a, a pretty substantial, you know, ag base in that college. And so they have traditional Wimrose composting. They've got uh, digester composting. They've got, you know, different pilot programs and stuff. And, and they do events as well, right? I yes, I believe so. Yep. Um, so I've taken some... Um you know, go, gone to some of the MSU events. And again, like, you know, some of them are going to be focused around agriculture and the things that they're promoting for uh, best agricultural practices. Um, uh, so MSU is an awesome resource. They have done some spectacular research uh, in terms of composting and in microbiology, uh, which is obviously very closely related. Fantastic. Adam, thank you very much for coming here. Before we leave, I, I want to give folks an opportunity to figure out how to get in touch with you. Adam Brent, again, is the founder and CEO of Coco Corporation, C-O-C-O-A Corp. Uh, their website is www.cocoa-corp.com. 
Uh, they're located just outside of Holland, Michigan in Lake Town Township and also are working on a couple other facilities throughout the country. Hopefully we'll have some announcements shortly. Definitely someone to keep your eyes on and watch. There's some videos on his website that we talked about. Uh, and again, you know, we talked about that book from Adam Bloom, uh, American Wasteland. There's a bazillion other books out there. And uh, we encourage you to continue to keep on learning on this. I would say, uh, you know, one, one other book that, that is, you know, not soil microbiology that, that people could really, uh, you know, get into is uh, Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, he does talk about the whole, you know, food production, barrel of oil in your corn and et cetera. So it's a, kind of like an agricultural industrial complex um, uh, book. But it's, it's fascinating and uh, walks you through um, the, the entire life's, life of uh, food production. It's, it's really pretty amazing. Fantastic. Adam, thanks for being here today. And folks, remember, keep your earballs on us and your eyeballs on the road. And we'll talk with you soon.